Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Hi, this is Kurt Woodsmith. You remember me from such TV comedies as That 70s Show and That 90s Show on Netflix. I'll never forget the words that my grandfather said just before he kicked the bucket. He said, watch how far I can kick this bucket. People ask me where I get my dad jokes from. I tell them to listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Listen to Daily Dad Jokes every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From HowStuffWorks.com, this is the Stuff of Life. Welcome to the Stuff of Life. I'm your host, Julie Douglas, and today we have a companion to the previous episode on eternity and the ways that we try to immortalize ourselves, like creating a digital avatar or a time capsule. This episode is about the objects we might put into a time capsule, or a storage unit, or even a box of memorabilia that we just can't seem to get rid of. Why do we hold on so tightly? In some ways, our stuff is ourselves. It tells a story about who we are. And hey, if it sticks around, maybe we will too. It becomes a kind of talisman against death. But that doesn't explain why some of us develop pathological attachments to things. Remember that movie with Tom Hanks when he got attached to the ball and he named it Wilson? I think that was part of his survival mechanism, is to feel like he had a connection to something or someone. And so people often who've been hurt by individuals throughout their life by people turn to objects and or even animals to feel like they have a sense of connection. That's Dr. Rebecca Beaton, a psychologist and director of the Anxiety and Stress Management Institute. We talked to her about why we project ourselves onto objects and how these projections can morph into insidious relationships with our belongings. But first, let's explore the mounting evidence that most of us have a lot of stuff. Perhaps too much stuff. That's the whole meaning of life, isn't it? Trying to find a place for your stuff. Sometimes you've got to move. You've got to get a bigger house. Why? Too much stuff. You've got to move all your stuff. And maybe put some of your stuff in storage. Imagine that. There's a whole industry based on keeping an eye on your stuff. That's from George Carlin's appearance at Comic Relief in 1986. His observation of our quest to accumulate was spot on. According to the Self-Storage Association, it took the industry more than 25 years to build its first billion square feet of space. 
Ah, but it added its second billion square feet in just eight years between 1998 and 2005. In 1986, Carlin was tapping into a preoccupation with storing our stuff. This preoccupation is very much an American thing. About 50% of households throughout the United States have used self-storage at least once in the last 10 years or so. The latest numbers show that 9.5% of all U.S. households have a self-storage unit that they're actively using, and that comes out to uh, a little less than 11 million people in the United States right now. And you know, Canada and Australia have some, but really United States residents here are the ones that really use self-storage more than in any other country. That's freelance writer and editor of Midwest Real Estate News, Dan Rafter. In 2015, he reported that the American landscape was studded with nearly 50,000 self-storage facilities, eclipsing familiar landmarks like McDonald's to become one of the most common roadside buildings. Turns out we use self-storage for lots of reasons, but most boil down to change in the form of death, divorce, downsizing, and dislocation. Dan Rafter isolates three high-profile examples of people who paid money to store their extraneous goods. Burt Reynolds, you know, the actor, came up a lot. Apparently, he was a big user of self-storage. In one of his self-storage units, he had stored the canoe from Deliverance. And then Joe Jackson, Michael Jackson's father, had a storage unit, and he had about 270 unreleased recordings from Michael Jackson stored away in there that he had forgotten about. Weirdest one I found, I had read that there was a storage locker. A person who owned it had passed away, and they went inside, and they found something wrapped in tinfoil. And when they opened it up, they thought it was me, but it actually turned out to be this person's amputated leg. And what's the problem there? I got a human foot. Have a one? I got a human foot, and this bum nasty got me grossed out. Here's what I found out about the third example. Sometimes people default on their self-storage payments and their items are auctioned off. In 2007, Shannon Wisnant bought the contents of a storage unit and discovered a severed foot inside of a grill. And as detailed in the recent documentary, Finders Keepers, a legal battle over ownership ensued between Wisnant and the man to whom the foot originally belonged, John Wood. He lost his leg three years ago, and that's just one hurdle life has thrown at him. I've been shot, run over by a state dump truck, electrocuted. I've been through a lot. An unbelievable character, isn't he? Isn't he? Isn't he? It's an example of layering an object with meaning, and in this case, ultimately coming to represent, for both men, the idea that if they possessed it, it could make them whole. Tricky logic, for sure, but the more you learn about their individual stories, the more you come to understand that the root of their logic is steeped in trauma. I lost my leg in a plane crash, and I lost my father after the crash. They send you home with a can full of Oxycontin and nobody says anything about the addiction. That's what about killed me. And I would have just kept on doing what I was doing. It's really all I had was that leg. Trauma is front and center when it comes to Dr. Beaton and her clients, particularly those who suffer from hoarding disorder. A lot of people who are are connected to things to the point of causing functional impairment in their lives, either socially or emotionally, uh, with their occupations, or they're, they've come to the point where they are actually hoarding, have experienced 20% more trauma than the average person. 
that's a lot of trauma. And these generally have to do with people hurting them or loss of individuals. You need look no further than an infant whose physiological development is wholly dependent on connection through touch to see that the need for attachment is hardwired in all of us. Our nervous system does not operate in a vacuum. We have to regulate our nervous system by connecting with other individuals. There's actually a whole theory about the vagal nerve that you've got to stimulate your vagal nerve in order to process emotions uh, intellectually, cerebrally, and in order to activate our entire system to work properly. And you have to have human connection with somebody that's safe and secure. So there's, there's these biological reasons for connection. And when somebody's not connecting to humans, they've got to find something to connect to. It's an elaborative processing problem, a kind of cognitive processing that deals with assigning meaning and importance when making decisions. It's the reason why someone who hoards assesses an object differently with a wider net of associations that allows them to see details and uses for things that most people would never conceive of. There's an acronym out there which I don't like because it's not very positive, but it's SICK, S-I-C-K. And the part I do like is what it stands for is S is for sensitive, I is for intelligent, C is for creative, and K is for kind. Most people who hoard have all those attributes. They tend to be very intelligent. I mean, oftentimes they have advanced degrees. Then you've got the creative component where, you know, they just see so many options in one small item. And they, they want to do something creative with each of these objects. They anthropomorphize items where everything has feelings, they're really kind to individuals. Certainly you can see, you can find a hoarder that has become sort of hardened over time that doesn't come across very kind at first, but usually underneath it all, there's a soft center. This is perhaps why there's an irrational fear of letting go of an object, and it looks like this. Now, you have seen countless hordes. You've stepped inside people's homes. Hundreds, yes. Yes. When you go in, do those hordes tell you a story more specifically about what's happening? Absolutely. Because every hoarder is a little different. And they're, they, I mean, at some point, I think they're going to come out with different types of hoarders. Because you have more of your addictive hoarder where they are addicted to shopping, they cannot stop acquiring or dumpster diving, I've seen that, and they have just bags of things they've never even opened up everywhere or just just dumped in places because they're all about the acquiring and there's no rhyme or reason to where everything is. Then you have the hoarder who is hiding behind a bunker. You walk in and there's a wall of clothes or stacks of boxes blocking certain areas, particularly like entrances or windows, or blocking off certain rooms because of memories in those rooms, a marriage that went sour and the bedroom is the first place it gets hoarded. The hoard basically just tells a story, what happened. So how common is hoarding disorder and how much of it is genetic? It is actually 
becoming more and more common. It's become a disorder now officially in our our manual of psychiatric disorders a few years ago that people are realizing, oh, that's what my aunt is doing or that's what my grandma was doing when I was growing up because we didn't really understand it before. Three to five percent of the population has hoarding disorder to the point where they meet the criteria for functional impairment of some kind due to the hoarding. People diagnosed with hoarding disorder have an 84% chance of having a first-degree relative who also has hoarding disorder. We know that there's this hereditary component. There's also learned behavior involved. We want to think about the nature-nurture question. If you've got a first-degree relative of a parent that's hoarding, they're teaching a child how to hoard as well. So you've got this propensity one way or the other, and then the loss on top of it sort of sets it off exponentially throughout the, the years of life. Hoarding also tends to show itself in adolescence, but then manifest later in life. People who have hoarding disorder tend to either begin the disorder in childhood or adolescence, have just a touch of it where they're just a little bit you know, more attached to things than the average person. But what happens is throughout the course of life, they have more and more trauma and more stressors. They have a lot more loss. And so they show up with hoarding disorder generally around age 55. That's the mean age. One thing that surprises a lot of people is the fact that there are more men who hoard than women. That always seems to come as a shocker. I do think that men are more reluctant to get social support. They're more reluctant to ask for help. And they also historically have had, we're talking about, you know, a mean age of 55. Historically, they've had the burden of being the provider in the family. That's changed, of course, in modern times. But we're talking, you know, people in their 50s and 60s right now. Those folks, the idea of providing was on their shoulders. So they've got to make sure they had that item just in case they need it. Dr. Beaton says that for small hordes, it can take up to two years for someone to work through their stuff. Think of a web of associations tangled up like the knots in a pile of wires or necklaces. Those associations that bind the object to the person have to be teased apart carefully. And because language is freighted with emotion, it's also important to use select words. You have to use certain language around letting go, too. Because if they've had a lot of loss, letting go is probably not the appropriate word. Um, finding a new home for it almost always works. So if you can find a charity that they really like, somebody that's going to be able to use the item on a daily basis, that if you you can, you know, if they say if they love animals, that they find a charity that benefits animals. And most of people who hoard love animals, by the way, that just goes along with it. There's so many components of non-acquisition, teach them how to organize, teach them how to find new ways of keeping the memory or working with the, the items so they can actually part with them. Without this understanding, someone trying to help could do some serious damage by rushing in and bagging up what they see as useless items. 
It is such a complicated disorder. I encourage people to learn about it. To, if you're a professional and you want to work with people who hoard, you need some serious training. This is not an easy disorder to work with. The one thing I would like people to know is this is truly a mental disorder. This isn't the fact that they're stubborn or messy or dirty, that this is a mental disorder and that there's so much trauma generally involved. These individuals are in a ton of pain and to have more compassion for them. We all cling to something for comfort, and the something started in childhood with a favorite frayed edge blanket or a worn toy. What we now know as transitional objects meant to bridge a child's inner world with his or her outer world. So it's easy to see how someone could turn to objects over and over again as a source of stability and contentment. Especially if we recast our understanding of hoarding disorder as a processing disorder. After all, we accept that there are synesthetes, people whose senses are crisscrossed, like someone who perceives a deep blue color when she sees the number eight, or another person who hears guitar music and his ankles suddenly tickle. Is it possible to accept that people who hoard might inhabit a similar realm, one triggered by trauma, in which a simple, lifeless object becomes animated in the imagination and takes on a rich emotional life? Life is written and co-produced by me, Julie Douglas. Original music and sound design is by co-producer Noel Brown. This episode also features music by the artists Mad and Fields, Ohio. Editorial oversight is provided by head of production, Jerry Rowland. So what is it that you can't part with and why? The one thing I have kept from my high school years, and it's kind of out me as, as sort of a geeky guy, but I uh, played the clarinet in the high school band, the marching band, and I haven't played it since I graduated high school, but I really enjoyed being in the band, so I haven't been able to get rid of that. For me, it's a mound of pyrite with a silver wizard perched on top. It sat on my dresser between the ages of 13 and 18 and represents all the awkwardness, wonder, and terror of being a teenager. Email us your story about your object of affection at thestuffoflifeathowstuffworks.com. And if you like what you hear, make sure to drop a review on iTunes. And you can also find us on Twitter and Facebook as The Stuff of Life. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Hi, this is Kurt Woodsmith. You remember me from such TV comedies as That 70s Show and That 90s Show on Netflix. I'll never forget the words that my grandfather said 
just before he kicked the bucket. He said, watch how far I can kick this bucket. People ask me where I get my dad jokes from. I tell them to listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Listen to Daily Dad Jokes every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Check the backseat. Check the backseat. All right, come here. Check the backseat. Gets in your head, right? Good. Because every year, dozens of children are forgotten in the backseat of a car by a parent or caregiver. All never thought it could happen to them. But with changes in routines, distractions, or a sleeping child, it can happen to anyone. Parked cars get hot fast and can be deadly. So get it in your head. Check the backseat. A message from NHTSA and the Ad Council.